the beginning, there was darkness, and God created light. We saw his face illuminated, and we knew him. But then, as sin entered our hearts, we turned from him and plunged ourselves back into darkness. Our view of God grew dimmer and dimmer as we fled further away. We lost sight of his true character. The God we once saw shining bright in majesty became hidden from us by the lies we surrounded ourselves with. But even in the darkness, our God is in control. Even through our questioning, our God is ruler over creation and unchanging amidst our confusion. He is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, infinite in understanding. And we are blessed when we seek his face. Our love is deeper when we know the God of eternal love. Our worship is sweeter when we recognize the holiness of the author of life itself, when the lies and the mystery fall away. Cornwall Church, it is good to be back with you, joining you in your homes, on your phones, on your computers, on your televisions. Uh, it's been exciting to hear how God has been using technology throughout the week, small groups meeting but via Zoom, quads getting together. Uh, even before uh, our services this weekend, our elders and our pastors have had Zoom virtual prayer meetings together, praying for you uh, as we continue to worship and look into God's Word. Uh, you know, this week, uh, it seems like every time you turn on your radio, you turn on your television, you open up your email, uh, you, you get any kind of information, there, there's more news, and, and it's not always good. In fact, sometimes it's unsettling. Uh, sometimes it causes a bit of fear and maybe some anxiety, uh, a lot of uncertainty about the future and what's going on. There have been a few little moments where there was little uh, possibilities of maybe a medication that might help slow some things. And I thought before we got started today that maybe as you've turned on your, uh, your computer or your television or your phone today, that we would give you a bit of information about another prescription from God's Word. Now, I don't want to be too cheesy here because it's not a prescription for coronavirus, but it's a prescription for life in times like this. And it's an amazing thing because... While it was written 2,000 years ago, it's as if it were written for our situation right now in March of 2020, and I believe it's a prescription for us, for our lives in this day. And the scripture says this, it says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need practice hospitality. And as I read about this, I just thought about how this is such a great prescription for how we're to live right now. Because with everything shut down, you can't go to the gym, they can't go to the theater, and the kids aren't in school, and the sports teams aren't playing. Chances are you have extra time on your hands. And there's a great opportunity for us to continue to, to grow in our zeal and keep our spiritual fervor. Instead of just binge watching Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus or whatever you're doing, is maybe take this opportunity in this season when you've got some extra time 
to spend some time in worship. You know, every week we have the, the Monday to Sunday playlist on Spotify, and you can just have worship brought right into wherever you are and to spend some extra time in worship. Maybe some extra time praying or being in God's word, memorizing some scripture, journaling, uh, having uh, spiritual conversations. And then it gives us these, these ideas like be joyful in hope. Now, the joyful in hope is not a Pollyanna, stick your head in the sand, don't worry, be happy, pretend like nothing's wrong. As you well know, for us as Christ followers, our joy and our hope is inexhaustible. It's inextinguishable because our joy is not just happiness. It's deeper than that. It's an attitude. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a, a posture that we have knowing that no matter what's going on, we have confidence that God is in control and that our hope is not just what we hope for, but it's who our hope is in. Our hope is built on nothing less than, than uh, Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and so we can be joyful in hope regardless of the circumstances. And then he says, and patient in affliction. And, and maybe you could change out the word affliction for patient in frustration. Uh, because maybe there's some times where you need to have patience while you're waiting in long lines or the store doesn't have what you're looking for. Or maybe the people that you're stuck in the house with are driving you a little bit crazy. Now remember, Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and this is a great opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to continue his transformational work in us of developing his character right within us. And then it says, and being faithful in prayer. As Pastor Brian said, as Ron said, we are a pray first church, and here's an opportunity to pray for, for health workers, to, to pray for first responders, to pray for our families, to pray for those who are sick, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our church, to pray for our governmental leaders, to pray for our world, to pray that God does some incredible things. You know, it's, it's no coincidence that a, a month ago, we finished up a season of 21 days of prayer and fasting. And there are some people who are saying, you know, let's pick that up again. And some have just started this weekend, another 21 days of prayer and fasting that leads us right up to Easter. And maybe you would want to kind of re-examine that. And then it says this, and share with God's people who are in need. We've got practical ways that we can help out other people. And then it says, practice hospitality for your neighbors, for people you know, for maybe those who are shut-ins or those who are struggling right now, to be able to practice hospitality. Such practical information here for us. Um, a couple of months ago, the great theologian, uh, Marshawn Lynch, said these words, take care of y'all chickens. Now, I don't have a clue what that means, but if it's anything at all like practicing hospitality, then take care of y'all chickens, be able to be there for one another. You see, this passage right here gives us a prescription for how to live out in practical ways to make a difference in our world right here and right now. And I think for some of you, maybe some of you dealing with some anxiety or some worry or the uncertainty, Maybe this is all you needed today. Maybe these are the verses God wanted you to hear. And this is what I would encourage for you to do, is to, to live with these verses this week. Read them every day. Write them down. Memorize them. Come back to them each, each day and see how you can live that out. Now, for some of you are saying, that's it. I'm good. I'm signing off. Well, have a good week. For the rest of us, however, I hope you'll stick around. hope you'll stick around. For the rest of us, we're continuing on in our Truth About God series. Um, Last week I mentioned because there's no babies in the nursery wanting their mothers and there's no workers in Explorers League saying these sermons go too long that I can go on and on and on and on. And I had several of you comment that while I said that, I preached one of the shortest sermons that I've ever preached in recent years, recent history last week. 
and I'm going to make up for that today. I guarantee you that today um, I will be going more than 37 minutes, and I'm glad that you're well caffeinated. I'm glad that you can get up and go to the restroom anytime you need to, and I hope you'll stick with us through this. As I said, we're in this series, The Truth About God, and today we have the monumental task of taking on a truth about God that is incomprehensible in a limited amount of time with a limited uh, teacher here. So today we're going to look at this concept, the truth about God, of the topic of the Trinity, this concept that there is one God in three persons. I, like many of you, uh, were raised in church, a traditional church, uh, singing hymns every single weekend, and some of you uh, sang along with me, holy, 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 which, by the way, we're talking about next week. But there's that last line in the first verse that says, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And I just grew up singing that, thinking, of course, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, not a big deal. In fact, when I began to hear people say the Trinity is hard to figure out, in my childlike, simple mind, I thought, this isn't that difficult for me to understand. I can explain it fully for all of you. See, my brother and I, we had bikes. Now, his was cooler than mine. My bike was from Sears and Roebuck. The only thing cool about it was that the banana seat had this sparkly seat. I mean, it was like a bass boat, you know, just sparkled in the sun. My brother... He had the Schwinn Stingray. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But he had it customized. Of course, it had the, the, the mini ape hanger handlebars. It had the banana seat. But he had the sissy bar in the back so he could cruise. And he had the long forks to make it a chopper. I mean, it was sweet. Got your motor running. Head out on the highway. I mean, it was sweet. So at times, Jerry and I, would get together and we would decide, today is the day we tune up our bikes, which really entailed washing them and then going into the garage and finding this little can that my dad had in the garage of three-in-one oil. Now, I don't know if anyone even uses three-in-one oil, but we had put this three-in-one oil on our chain, and that was kind of the extens uh, extensive nature of, of tuning up our bikes, which is about the extent of what I can do for tuning up cars or anything else at this point in my life still. But this three-in-one oil, the whole concept is that you have this one oil with these three things, that it cleans, it lubricates, and it protects. And I thought, simple, that's just like the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. As I got older, I began to realize that my simplistic childlike view of three-in-one oil worked for me as a kid, but the complexities of the Trinity, it truly is something that we cannot fully understand or comprehend. One of the greatest thinkers, one of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest authors in all Christian history after the New Testament was a man named Augustine. Some of you know him as St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. He spent 16 or 17 years on this one topic, the Trinity, and he thought and he prayed and he studied and he wrote, and after 16 or 17 years, he published his work, this tome, uh, it's called On the Trinity. It's like 550 pages long, very extensive, very deep theological work, which I, I thought this was interesting. I just found this out. You can actually get it on Kindle for 99 cents. So all his 17 years of work, for 99 cents, it's all yours. So he does all this. Augustine said this, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try and explain it, you will lose your mind. Now, I don't want any of you to lose your soul. That's why we're covering this thing of the Trinity. The problem is, this is my part here if I try to explain it. So in the next bit, I'm going to lose my mind. Here's the cool thing, is that right now, any questions you have about the Trinity, 
Pastor Kip is online with the chat. You can ask him. He'll answer them all. I hope I don't confuse you, but he'll straighten it all out. But if this is at all true, then I think what we're getting ready to embark on, we need the help of God. And I wonder if right now uh, you would pray with me just quickly. Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you reveal about yourself to us. And I pray that today, as we open your word, your living word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand this truth a bit more. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all truth. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, the Trinity. The Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, in fact, you trace it back. The best people can figure out is that there was an early church father, probably in the second century, his name was Tertullian, that came up with this word Trinity. It's this idea of three, the, the, the triune nature of God. Now, just because the word is not in the Bible doesn't mean it doesn't exist or that it's not true. In fact, the word uh, um, uh, omniscient and the word omnipresent, those aren't in the Bible either. Didn't stop Pastor Brian from preaching about them. So we're going to continue on with this thing. While the word Trinity is not in the Bible, there is reference after reference after reference that alludes to and points to this concept of one God in three persons, the Trinity throughout. And while there are all these verses, and we're going to look at a lot today, we cannot fully understand or explain this truth about God, the Trinity. But that shouldn't stop us because there's a lot of things in life we can't explain or understand and it doesn't stop us either. I mean, there's things about nature. There's things in science that can be observed but they can't be explained even by the greatest minds. They don't fully understand why these things happen. There's things in our lives that, that we see, we, we know we don't fully understand, but doesn't stop technology. The fact that I am coming to you on whatever device you're watching right now, I don't have a clue how that's even possible. I don't understand any of that, but it doesn't stop us from utilizing it. I mean, think about in the social sciences or behavioral, in psychology. There are things that people can explain, but can't, they, can, they can observe it, but can't explain why. Or even in relationships. Women, those of you who are married, there have been times you've looked at your husband and you just said, no words. I can't explain why he, if you've ever worked with junior high boys, especially seventh grade boys, you know what I'm talking about. You can observe what they're doing, but it's like, I can't explain. I don't understand. I can't explain. So if those are the, the truths in our lives, why would we think it would be any less for our immortal, infinite, eternal God that we wouldn't be able to fully understand or explain all there is about him? So today, we're going to undertake just a little bit uh, of that, uh, looking into it. As I said, there's a lot of Bible verses. If you're online, of course you're online. All of you are online. The Bible verses are listed in the notes. We're going to hit most of them. There's a, a ton we're going to be going through. And uh, as we do that, I, I think what we need to establish, first of all, is this whole idea of, of God being one, but three. So this idea that God is one comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This In, in uh, Jewish tradition, this is called the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord, our God. The Lord is one. That This is the concept of monotheism as opposed to a polytheism or tritheism or pantheism. That there is one God and there are three faith traditions that hold to a monotheistic view. Judaism, one God. Christianity, one God. And, and uh, Islam. These three faith traditions have a monotheistic view. So there is one God. 
But even in this Shema, which the, the uh, good Jewish families and, and people would say every morning and every night, it was, it was on their doorposts, it was on, on their, their foreheads, it was on the, the frames of their houses. Even in this scripture that points to there being one God, there are hints, there's a hint that this one God is maybe more than just what meets the eye. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, an author, uh, wrote a book, a, a scholarly book, called the, the, uh, the Sovereign God. And in that, he references this word one, and he says this word one in the Hebrew is echad, echad, which he said it is translated one, but in the Bible, it is it's never one in isolation. It's always one in unity, such as talking about one bunch of grapes. The bunch is one, but there's, there's more than just one grape. Or that Israel is one people. There's not just one person, but it's one people. And he says, even in this that points to our God as one, it's got this, this plural view to it. This, and in Genesis chapter one, verse one, very familiar verse, in the beginning, God, that word God, Elohim, there, uh, the Hebrew word Elohim, while it connotes singularity, grammatically, it's actually a masculine plural sense, this Elohim. So there are these hints toward this. And it helps us understand things like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when we read this. Then God said, talking about creation and talking about uh, humanity, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, the only way you make sense of that and still hold to this God being a monotheistic one God, is that there are three persons within this oneness. As far as the Trinity, as far as this truth about God, the Trinity itself is, it is exclusive and it's essential to Christianity. Christianity is the only faith tradition that holds to this truth. Judaism does not. Islam does not. And what's interesting, and I don't want to go too far down these rabbit trails, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, those known as the Mormons, would not hold to a Trinitarian position like we do. The Jehovah's Witnesses would not either. This is a exclusive to Christianity, and it's essential to Christianity and the message of the gospel as well. So I want us to, to dig into that. So, okay, how do we get to this point? If the word's not there, there's some hints. Is there something more than just grammatical gymnastics we can do? Absolutely. Let's look, first of all, with the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah uh, says this in Isaiah chapter 6, which you want a little homework. Next week, we're going to spend a little bit more time in Isaiah chapter 6. You can read that on your own, but that's for next week. He comes into the very presence of God, and he sees God on his throne. And he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's this picture of the Lord, the, this, the one God, whom shall I send and who will go for us? This picture of plurality within the singularity of this one God. Later, and this is cool, in Isaiah chapter 48, it says, come near, uh, come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. Watch this. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. You see the three there. The sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. Later in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, 
It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, releasing the, the captives and setting them free. That passage. 700 years later, 700 years later, Jesus goes back to his hometown that he raised, was raised in. He's 30 years old. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue as was his custom, it says. He went to church every week. So he goes to the synagogue as was his custom. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He opens to this passage, Isaiah 61, and he reads, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And he continues to read through that. He rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant. He sits down and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your presence. What he was saying was, I am the me that Isaiah wrote about 700 years ago. And the sovereign Lord and the anointing of the spirit. And you see the three of these here in this. And Jesus said, I am that me. Now, it's an interesting thing, this concept of the Trinity, because Jesus had no problem with it, as we'll see later on. Jesus, I mean, he was a part of the Trinity. And the early church had no problem with it, believed it. The New Testament church, the uh, first century church. However, in about the fourth century, there was a really, for the first time, a major, um, like a division in the church, in the followers of Christ. And there was a man from Alexandria, his name was Arius, and he believed that Jesus was divine but was not equal with the Father. He believed that Jesus was not co-eternal, that Jesus had been created, and that yes, he may have been divine, true, but he wasn't equal with the Father, and that, there was this, that like, he was a subordinate of God the Father. And there was this big split uh, theologically do you believe that Jesus was God, co-eternal, co-equal with God, or is he not? And because it became such a divisive issue, um, the emperor, Constantine, says, we have got to get clarity on this. We've got to get this resolved. And he called together the first ecumenical council. It happened in a place called Nicaea, which is now today be close to like Istanbul, uh, Turkey brings together more than 300, sorry about going down this church history stuff, but it kind of helps us with this. Hope, hope I don't lose you on my rabbit trails here. Pulls together more than 300 bishops and priests and, and theologians and church leaders. And they come together and they pray and they look at scripture and they discuss and they seek and they come up with this document to say, this is what the church believes on this subject. And then later it was revised in 281, uh, 80, or 381, excuse me, uh, at the council in Constantinople. And it has become this document that is referred to as the Nicene Creed. Some of you have heard of this. In the Nicene Creed, and I won't read you the whole thing, but it says this. I believe in one God, that's that monotheism we talked about, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, this is where it gets really important here, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And then later on it says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. And this was the statement. 
And for 1,600 years, this has been the benchmark of orthodoxy regarding the Trinity. For 1,600 years, those who would say, I stand in, in, in agreement with this, would be able to say, you know what, this is historically what the church has prayed, the fathers have prayed through, and what God has revealed, that Jesus, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all one, and yet they are three. It's an interesting thing as you look at this. If you could boil it all down, the Trinity, you boil it all down, it's this, in essence, what I've been saying, one in essence, three in persons. That God is one in essence, but three in persons. He is the Father, He is the Son, and He is the Holy Spirit. Now remember, we cannot fully grasp this, but we're going to get as much as we can. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not attributes of God. You remember last week, we looked at three different attributes, that God is eternal, that he's infinite, and that he's unchangeable. I mean, you can talk about three different attributes. Pastor Brian has attributes. He's holy, he's handsome, and he's humble. I mean, those are attributes. These are not attributes of God. These are three persons of God, distinctive in their personhood, yet co-equal and co-eternal with God. Now, the big rift that came back in the, in the fourth century really had to do with God and Jesus. Not the Holy Spirit as much, but it was this God and Jesus. Is Jesus truly God eternal? And yet we see throughout Scripture, in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, where it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, follow this, being in very nature God. That's one in essence. Being in very nature God. Jesus is in very nature God. Or in Colossians chapter 1, when it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Or in Colossians chapter 2, where it talks about that Christ uh, is the, 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 all the fullness of the deity exists in bodily form. All of Godness exists in his body. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So all the way through, you see this picture that Jesus and God, the Father, are one. And, and it's, uh, it's an amazing thing when you begin to try to, to put this into ways that we can explain. Every single analogy, illustration, example falls short somewhere. And, and I've, heard, I've, I've heard them all. You know, I mean, the egg, it's the yolk, it's the egg white, it's the shell, they're all three different, but they're one, you know, okay, well, that falls apart somewhere down the road here. H2O, it can be a solid, it can be frozen ice, it can be a liquid, it can be water, it can be steam, it can be a gas, a vapor, whatever, okay, yeah, yeah, that doesn't totally play out. You know, or, or how about me? I, I can be, I am a father, I am a husband, I am a son, or here in this context at Cornwall Church, I am a member of the congregation. I'm a congregant just like you. I'm a pastor and I'm an elder. The, all of these fall short. The three-in-one oil, they, they all fall, fall short. Even the environment here. Right now, there's light, there's heat, and there's air. None of them are adequate. We just know that God is in essence one, but distinctly three persons. It's hard to define and explain what this is, maybe what would be helpful is to explain what it's not. And this is really important. What this is not. It's not three gods, and they're not three parts. Not three gods, and not three parts. Remember, monotheism, one God. Hinduism 
as opposed, Hinduism has literally, and I'm not exaggerating here, millions and millions and millions of gods, but they have three primary gods. If you've ever studied world religions or know anything about Hinduism, millions upon millions of gods all, all over the place. But these three, Brahma, uh, Vishnu, and Shiva, are their top three gods. This is not what we're talking about here. I referenced this before, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses would not believe this. They believe that Jesus is not equal with God, that he was a created being. In fact, in the New World Translation of Scriptures in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God. Not God, a God. And with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, very interesting, they believe that Jesus was a man who became God. In Christianity, we believe that Jesus was God who became a man, and you say, well, that's a matter of semantics. Not at all. That is a significant, significant difference because they would teach that you as a human being can become a God just like Jesus did. All right, now, I don't want to go down those rabbit trails too far, but we're not talking about three different gods. Christianity isn't a tritheism. It's a monotheism, and it's not three parts. Sometimes we get this idea that, okay, here's how I figured it out. God is one God, and the Father, like, did the Old Testament stuff. And then he tapped out and says, okay, my part's done. And Jesus taps in, and Jesus does the New Testament part. And uh, shorter, yes, but very, very much more difficult, possibly. And then he's done, and he taps out, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and he does the church and all that. I, I, I know that some of you say, well, that, that helps me make sense. That is not theologically correct, okay? Um, we're in a season right now where all sports have been canceled, and some of you baseball fans, I'm not sure why you are, but now you have a lot of time on your hands because those games that go on forever aren't going to be happening. But let me give you a baseball illustration. Sometimes people get this idea that God is like a pitcher, that the father is the starter, Jesus is the reliever, and yeah, you got it, the Holy Spirit is the closer and finishes it out. Okay, eh, inaccurate. That's not what it is. Sometimes... People will try to explain this whole thing mathematically. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Some people will say, okay, well, people especially who do not buy into the whole idea of uh, the Trinity might say, okay, well, it's like this. One plus one plus one equals three. Now, here's the truth on that. That is really good math, really bad theology. Others would say, okay, well, how about this? One-third plus one-third plus one-third equals three-thirds or one. Once again, really good math, really bad theology. It's not three parts. Some would say, okay, well, I've got it figured out. One plus one plus one equals one. Okay, really bad math, really bad theology. That one doesn't work either. And then some would say, well, how about this one? Well, one times one times one equals one. Good math, better theology, but not quite enough. Not really what's going to cut it. Now, here's the deal on this one. Why is it that somehow we think that God has to be explained by a mathematical equation? If you were with us last week, you know that God is outside of time and time is within God. So how could we say, well, God has somehow got to fit into, God is outside of mathematics. Mathematics is something God created. 
So this isn't adequate. Now, years ago, there was a man named Daniel Webster, brilliant man. Uh, he, was, he was in the Congress, and uh, he was the Secretary of State for three different presidents. He was a brilliant man, and someone asked him, Daniel Webster, how can someone of your intellect actually believe in the Trinity? And this is what he said. I do not pretend fully to understand the arithmetic of heaven now. He says, I, I can't fully grasp this, but I believe it's true. And here's the beautiful thing for us, is that we don't have to have a mathematical equation to prove or to somehow explain that God is one in essence and three in persons. Let's go to the word of God. Now, hold on. All these verses are in your notes. We're going to go flying through a bunch of stuff. Before we get into that, if you were with us last summer, we studied the book of Ephesians for like 14, 15 weeks. The very first chapter of Ephesians chapter 1, that would be the same thing. In Ephesians chapter (laughs) 1, starting at verse 3 through verse 14, I, I don't expect you to remember this, but that whole section Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one continuous, ongoing, you know, long sentence. There's no periods. There's no paragraphs. It's one thought. It's one, just this, this run-on sentence that Paul just writes, and it's one continuous thought. In that thought, he says, starts off saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Jesus. So you've got God the Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it talks about God the Father. And it says that he has chosen us, that he's predestined us, that he's adopted us as sons. That's what God has done, the Father. He's adopted us as sons through Jesus. And then he shifts and says, and through Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And in Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. And we are included in Christ. And then he shifts And we have been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance ultimately in heaven. And all this is praise to the glory of God. And you just see this picture of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work in the redemption. Uh, And later he continues to talk about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and the wall of separation being torn down and how Jesus has brought all things together. And he says this in Ephesians chapter two, for through him, talking about Jesus now, Through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So you see this picture of the Trinity. Uh, Paul would later write to the churches uh, in in the regions of Galatia. He says, because you are sons, lowercase s there, God, the Father, sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, hold on to this one. We're going to come back to this at the very, very end. But you see again, God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, someone said, well, okay, but that's Paul. And what about Jesus? All right, well, let's talk about Jesus. How about this? At the birth, before the birth of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary, the Virgin Mary, and he says to her, you're going to have a child. He says, how can that be? I've never known a man. And the angel Gabriel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the Holy One born will be the Son of God. I mean, in that very proclamation, Gabriel's talking about how God in his triune nature is going to bring this miracle about. 
And then Jesus starts off his ministry. And when it, when it comes to the Trinity, it's like the bookends of Jesus' ministry. He's getting ready to start his, you know, he's, he's done the thing at the temple when he was 12. We don't hear about him for about 18 years. Now he's getting ready to start his ministry. He's gone to see his cousin John the Baptist down at the Jordan River. He's been baptized. And this is what we read about that experience in Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized. There he is, the son. He comes up. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the voice of the Father says, this is my son. Right there to start off his ministry, you have the Trinity right there. It's one of those rare moments when they're all present at the same time. So for three years, he teaches, he heals, he does miracles, he does incredible things, he ushers in the kingdom of God, he invites everyone to be a part of this great good news of the kingdom. And then he's crucified and he's killed. And by his blood, our sins are forgiven. And then he's raised from the dead and by his life, we are given eternal life and power over sin and death. And then he calls his followers together just before he ascends to the Father and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, this, this is Jesus' words. He's saying, when people become followers of mine, when they become my disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The, the triune nature of our one God. Now listen, when we do baptisms here at Cornwall, we baptize by full immersion. Before we baptize someone, we will say these very, very words as Jesus instructed. I bat upon the profession of your faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, one little quick rabbit trail. I know I don't have time for it. Click, turn me off, I don't care. I do care, I do, stay with me, stay with me, okay. In some traditions, some traditions in Christianity, they actually baptize people three times. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anyway, that's just for fun. No, it's free. Just for you. Okay, so Jesus says, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends to the, to, the, to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in a minute. Ten years later, the church is going. The Holy Spirit's doing incredible things. People are becoming uh, followers of Jesus. Peter is in a place called Joppa, down by the, uh, down by the Mediterranean Sea. And he's staying at a place, uh, a guy named Tan, uh, uh, Simon, Simon the Tanner, staying at his house. And he's praying one day, and he has this vision of a, of a sheet being let down from heaven. You can read it all yourself in, in Acts chapter 10. Great story. At the same time, there's a guy named Cornelius who's a few miles up the road at a place called Caesarea. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a part of the Italian regiment that's there at Herod's uh, area there in, in Caesarea. He is a God-fearing Roman. He prays and he does good. And God gives him a vision and says, go and bring this man, Simon Peter, to tell you about the truth. So the next day... Uh, Peter goes up to, to Caesarea to meet with Cornelius and his household and his, and his friends and, and family, and he's telling them the story about Jesus. And he says this in Acts chapter 9. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth 
with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So Peter comes and he's saying, listen, here's the truth about this whole thing. There's God the Father, there's just Jesus of Nazareth, and there's the Holy Spirit, there's this trinity. Now, we can go on and on and on. I just want to kind of build this case that, listen, in the, in the New Testament church, they taught this, Jesus taught this, they believed this. Here's a cool thing, and this is one of the beautiful things about the Trinity, is that the Trinity, the way that the Trinity operates, is that the Trinity acts in harmonious unity. That there's, there's not any squabbling for position, there's no ranking, there's no one-upmanship, there's no uh, power struggle, there, 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 there's, there's just this, this beautiful community where there's a mutual submission. They're not jealous of each other, and, and they just, in, in full delight and humility and love, they operate together in this harmonious unity. They just acquiesce to one another. They defer to one another. God sends Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. After Jesus is there, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be temptation, tempted, and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And Jesus says, I'm here, and I only do the will of the Father, and I only say what the Father tells me to say, and I'm here to glorify the Father, and we're going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to point to Jesus, and God says, and I'm going to glorify my Son. And you just see there's this, like this, this circle of them just deferring to one another and caring for one another, and, and all this is just going, I'll be obedient. We'll work in harmony on all of this. There's a theologian named Dale Bruner, and he wrote a book entitled The Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. And the whole concept of this is that the Holy Spirit, he says, is shy, not like in a timid way shy, but shy in that he doesn't draw attention to himself, that, that the Holy Spirit is all about doing the Father's will and pointing people to Jesus. And, and Bruner, uh, when he talks about this, when he, when he teaches this, this is the way that he'll, he'll often teach it in a very simplistic way. Um, you don't have to be a, a great artist, but he'll say, let's say uh, this was Jesus, okay? All right, so here's Jesus. When he's talking about this, and he says, and when you see throughout Scripture what the Holy Spirit does, this is what the Holy Spirit does, and this is how Bruno would teach this. The Holy Spirit says, look at him. Listen to him. Learn from him. Follow him, worship him, serve him, love him, be, be preoccupied with him. That the Holy Spirit is not about drawing attention to himself. The Holy Spirit says, I'm here to shine a light on Jesus. I'm here to point people to Jesus. I'm here to, 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 to exalt Jesus. And that he does that. And you just see the Trinity working in this harmonious unity. Okay, let's run through some of these things real quickly. How about doing the will of the Father? All right, it says this. Um, for I have come down from heaven, this is Jesus saying, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He says, I I'm here to do what, what God has sent me to do. Important, you hold on to that little word, sent, okay? I'm here to do what God sent me to do. Or how about this? He says, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Now, this is cool. Jesus says, I'm here to do God's will. God says, here's my will, that you guys would look at my son, and that in him you'll find eternal life. And even when it wasn't an easy thing, there was a, hey, I'll do this. Like I already mentioned, when the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, that was not a fun thing. And yet he went. 
And as you're very familiar, and the night before he's crucified, when he's in the garden with his disciples, and he says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I want to do your will. And Jesus made some incredible claims. He said some unbelievable things. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an amazing statement. In the Sermon on the Mount, he would continually say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. But look what else he says about what he says. For I did not speak my, on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. He just said, only things I'm saying are what the Father tells me to say. That we're so in one that way. That, that we, I will do his will, I will speak what he speaks, and, and, it, and there's not any kind of jealousy of like, wow, you get more attention than I do. And in fact, when it comes to glory, it says this. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. He says, listen, I'm not here to bring about my own glory. My father is the one who glorifies me. And watch this. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. He says, yeah, I mean, I'm glorifying you, but I'm glorifying myself as well. And then Jesus says in John 17, as he's praying this high priestly prayer, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Father, you sent me to do this. I've done it, and it's all for your glory Watch this. Back to Philippians chapter 2. When it talks about how Jesus was being obedient to what God had sent him to do, obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's just this unbroken chain of just, we want to do each other's will. We're so one in our, in our purpose, in our will, in our love. We just glorify, and, and all this just continues on. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? Okay, here's another little glimpse where you see uh, this picture of the Trinity, where Jesus said this, talking about this one that he will send when he goes back to be with the Father. And I, Jesus, will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, this paraclete, this one who come alongside this helper, to be with you forever. And Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and the Father's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And as far as the Holy Spirit, when he, and this is important that you know, because sometimes we relegate the Spirit of God to some cosmic force out there. Too much Star Wars you know, interference here. Notice, he, not it. When he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's what I prayed for us today. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Again, you see this. The Holy Spirit will come. He will guide you. He's not on his own. He hears what the Father says. He's glorifying, pointing people to Jesus. Later, Jesus would talk about the Holy Spirit, and he would say, listen, Everything the Father has is mine. And the Holy Spirit has access to everything that's mine. And he's going to take that and he's going to give it to you. You just see how they work together over and over again. 
All right, we've got to keep moving. I know, I know, I know. But we're almost there, okay. So how is it that this triune God, one God and three persons, work together? And again, it's not like, hey, I did my part, I'm out, you do your part. Let's think about creation real quickly. Genesis uh, chapter one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, familiar for us, many of us, we've heard that. Yeah, that's right, creator God. John chapter one, which we studied about a year and a half ago. John chapter one, in the beginning, same words. In the beginning was the word, Jesus was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1, it says, For by him all things were made, things in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones or rulers, powers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, that Jesus is the creator. Here's the other cool part of this. Read Psalm 104 sometimes. Beautiful, beautiful psalm about God in relationship to all of the creation and what he does. Verse 30, it says, When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So even in creation... It's not just, well, that's, that's the Father's job. Well, you know, I'm, I'm more of a crucifixion guy, and I'm more of a spirit, you know, gifts and uh, fruit guy over here. No, no, no. They're all working in conjunction. How about the greatest event of all history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We read this. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Three weeks from this weekend, we celebrate this great resurrection of Christ. God raised him. But look what Jesus said. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my father, he gave me the authority to do this. Or in Romans where it says this, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or, or redemption. Now, we already talked about Ephesians 1 and the, and the beauty of that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says this. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Do you see how the redemption of our lives is with the plurality of this Godhead? Or how about this one? Uh, out of Hebrews, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? One in essence, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, with one purpose, one purpose for the world, one purpose for human history, one purpose for you and me. Okay, I know that's a lot, and I know it's gone long, but let's try to land this plane, because you might, some of you might be saying, if you're still with me, you might be saying, does any of this even matter? Is it really that important? And I would say, absolutely. It is very important. This picture of one God, monotheistic, in three persons, exclusive only to Christianity, this is very important. Because theologically, it's biblical, and this is very important for us. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, watch your life and your doctrine carefully. I want you to know what you believe. I want you to know that your belief is founded on the word of God and not just something I or someone else said. So it's very important. Here's another reason. 
And this goes back to what, what uh, Augustine wrote in, uh, in, in the early 5th century in the councils of Nicaea and, and, uh, and in Constantinople, is that historically, it's orthodox. This is the belief that all Christians believe, that God is one in three persons. Roman Catholics believe this. Protestants believe this. Eastern, Eastern Orthodox believe this. The, uh, the Coptic Christians believe this. Presbyterians believe this. Anglicans believe this. Lutherans believe this. Episcopalians believe this. Methodists believe this. For those of you from Linden, the CRC and the RCA both agree on this one thing. They both believe this. Baptists believe this. Anabaptists believe this. Nazarenes believe this. Assemblies of God believe this. Pentecostals believe this. Quakers believe this. You say, Christians don't, don't agree on anything. On this we do, that there is one God, and he is one in essence, but he is three in persons. We can't fully explain it. We won't fully understand it, but it's true. It's biblical. And for 1,600 years, that document has said, if you want to be orthodox in following the, the, the faith, this is our belief. And let me ask answer the question that some of you have asked me. Some of you are saying, when is it ever going to get to whatever really matters? And here's your question. So who do I pray to? Do I pray to the Father? Or do I pray to Jesus? Or do I pray to the Holy Spirit? Because I'm kind of confused because I was taught to pray our Father and to end it with in Jesus' name. And to make matters even more confusing, in Hebrews chapter 7 it says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for me. So he's praying for me. Is, who's he praying to? And should I pray to him or to whoever? And in Romans chapter 8, it says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for me with groanings too deep for me to even understand. And Paul says that we ought to offer all kinds of prayers in the Spirit. And I'm just so confused. And maybe the reason my prayers don't get answered is I've sent them to the wrong department. Uh, okay, relax, first of all. So who do you pray to? Let me just say, Pray. That's a good place to start. You pray. And let me just say this. And some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. I don't know that the triune God sits in heaven saying, well, he prayed that one to you. She prayed that one to you. I'm off the hook on this one. Or, hey, you prayed that one? Listen, no, no. I'm more of a creation God. That, that's something you, you should have given to the Holy Spirit. Sorry, wrong department. Got the wrong form filled out. God, we just saw how God works together in unity. And when Jesus said to us, this then is how you should pray. Our Father. I don't know that that was so much distinguishing who the recipient of our prayers are as much as it was illustrating the relationship he wants us to have with our loving Heavenly Father. Remember, the Holy Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. When Jesus said, pray, our Father, that, that word, Abba, it's like Papa. It's this relationship of we don't have to cower in fear because of what Christ has done. We have full access to God. I mean, that'd be like if my daughter came to me and said, hey, Dad, or is it okay if I call you Dad? Or should I call you Pastor Marvel? Or should I call you Robert? Or should, should, I, should I call you Father? Like, just relax. Oh, okay, well, I'm just wondering, when I communicate with you, should I text you, or should I write a letter, or should I phone call, or should I Skype you, or FaceTime, or, 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 or is there another way? Should I talk to someone else to talk to you? And, and I'll be saying, you know what? Uh, yes, 
all of the above. I just, I just want to have community. I want to have a relationship with you. And I believe that that's where we can land on this one. Now, if you, some of you are saying, I need, I need an answer. Okay, here you go. Just like I prayed at the beginning of our time together. Pray to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ because the three are one. You see, personally, it's significant. It's significant to us because this God who goes beyond our understanding wants to have a relationship with us. This Father who predestined us, who chose us, who adopted us, the Son who poured out his blood and his life, this Holy Spirit that dwells right within us to convict us, to guide us, to empower us, to point us to Jesus, wants to walk with us. So now I close with this one. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How beautiful is that? That this is our reality. That we live in the grace of Jesus Christ. And the love that we talked about last week, I have loved you with an everlasting love, this infinite love. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who dwells right within us. Live in that reality each day.